Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, June the 5th, 2012. This is episode 615 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to do kind of a cool show. I'm going to do a show based on things that I've found, uh, some in dealing with other people, a lot from my own personal experience. To be very, very efficient from a homestead standpoint, we're going to lead off with some stuff for protein production uh, for, uh, from a, uh, a homestead standpoint. And then we're going to go into more of the stuff that we grow. I'm going to talk about not only what to grow, but what to do with it after you've grown it. Uh, and I'm going to try to do it so that, let's say, 90% of the material is ap applicable to anybody with even a small yard. Um, some of the stuff I guess you could do on an uh, apartment uh, balcony with you know small gardening and stuff, but this is really stuff that you know honestly is for someone with access to land, but not necessarily access to you know 10 acres. A little bit of what I'm going to talk about is going to be kind of geared toward that, but most of it isn't, and uh, we'll we'll move on from there as uh, as we go forward. Anyway, before we get into that though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Uh, you notice I said shelf, like something you put stuff on, not self like yourself, Shelf Reliance. Kind of cool, see what they're going with there. The reason they do that is they specialize in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat on a constantly rotating basis. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. And uh, with with that, you actually get access to just hundreds of different uh, varieties of long-term storage food, stuff that you can put away for you know decades at a time. And if you go look at ShelfReliance.com and you start shopping the different varieties and things that are available with Thrive, I have to tell you, the, from a variety aspect, they put every other manufacturer of long-term food storage to shame. They also have some of the best-tasting long-term storage food I've ever seen. Uh, I'm a big believer, eat what you store, store what you eat. I'm a big believer in grow as much as you can. That's what we're going to talk about it today. But I also am realistic, and I know when you get over 60 to 90 days of storage, somewhere in there, it, it just you have to kind of go to somebody to help you help you get past that bridge with the long-term storables. Thrive is one of the best brands of foods I know to do that with, so check them out today again at ShelfReliance.com. Next up today, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the primary social media outlets that I use. I bounce around on some of the other stuff, but that's the stuff I do. You guys that are uh, sending me LinkedIn connection requests and stuff, sometimes I do that, but I really don't have anything to do with LinkedIn. If you ever want to get a hold of me, if you want to tell me something, if you want to communicate with me, I give the address out all the time, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. If you email me, I'm not guaranteeing you I will answer, but I'm guaranteeing you I will at least scan and read your email to a degree. The shorter, the more direct, and the more to the point your email is, the more likely you are to get a response from me. If you write me a book of five paragraphs, I will probably only cursory skim your email and then delete it, not because I don't care but because I cannot go through a thousand emails a day and actually read long emails. I can't do it. I don't have the ability. It's not that I don't want to. I can't. So be brief and direct with your emails, especially on first contact. And I try to get back with people. I try to develop personal relationships with you guys. But again, help me out here with brevity and to the pointness. Anyway, next up, remember, you can uh, support the show. And you can do that by joining the Member Support Brigade. That'll cost you 50 bucks a year. 
If you work that out over a year, it's 18.3 cents per episode. Call it 20 cents. So if every time you get off of the air here, you think, you know, that was worth two dimes, consider joining the MSB and you'll be supporting the show. What will you get in return? You'll get uh, a tr tr tremendous value. You get discounts to over 32 vendors. Uh, you'll get uh, some video content that's available nowhere else. You'll get over $150 worth of free ebooks. You'll get all that on day one. I think I've put together a really good program. And you'll get all of the uh, all of the episodes of Survival Podcast ever produced back to episode one in convenient zip files. Occasionally I don't get it updated in the back area for you guys with the old episodes. All I'm going to say is when you click on the links for the zip files, I can't give it out over the air exactly how you do it because, you know, then everybody would get, be able to get to them. Uh, but if you were to just take the last piece off of the domain that you click on, the last piece, so the part that says, you know, ep EPI, you know, 1 through 24 or whatever it says, not zip. If you just took that off, you go back to the root directory and you'd see them all whether I've updated or not. Maybe next time I update it, I'll put a link to that directory just to make it easier for you guys when I fall behind on updates in the MSB. Because to be honest, the way the MSB was developed, it's kind of a pain in the butt to do those updates. But I've got a new one coming up. So uh, if you've been waiting for the more recent ones, you can uh, go back there and get them probably tomorrow. All right, uh, last but not least, uh, remember to check out tspcopper.com, tspcopper.com for some really cool uh, copper medallions, very, very affordable. Uh, they start out at about $34 a roll, and they go down in quantity from there. Cool stuff you can order, like Second Amendment, uh, to spread the word on the Second Amendment, Ron and Rand Paul, Course of, Sur Course of Survival podcast and the Real Truth About Money, and a lot of other cool stuff. We even have a honeypot one for you beekeepers. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show. You know, part of why I'm doing this is last year I went over to the, the dark side, as they say. I went over and did paleo. And when I started doing the paleo thing halfway, I was 283 pounds. I had some results with it. And then eventually I went, you know what? I've got to get rid of this weight. And I got fully on board with the paleo bandwagon. And other than like when I travel and I just let myself enjoy a few things, uh, I've been pretty much 100% paleo for over a year now. Uh, I weighed myself the last time we had the dogs at the vet on the dog scale, which is a very accurate scale. And I was 203 pounds. Uh, in high school, I weighed 190 pounds, and I'm two inches taller than I was then, and I was in damn good shape then. So I am pretty happy with my results. But when I came out with that, a lot of people acted like, oh, the whole homesteading, prepping, everything is just off. I mean, oh, my God, how can we possibly prep without beans and rice and noodles uh, and potatoes? And my response was, well, you do everything except beans and rice and noodles and potatoes. There's all the other stuff still there. And I think some people really get stuck with it. And I've actually found all of the things that I do toward homesteading, and as I, as I plan uh, buying a larger property in Texas and think about large-scale permaculture, uh, everything got easier. Everything got easier. I'm not wondering, how would I grow wheat? How would I grow? I mean, I don't care. How would I grow potatoes and deal with, you know, in, in the south with white potatoes, there's a lot of problems with blight. There's a lot of problems with insects. There's a lot of problems with heat. There's a narrow window to do it in spring and fall. You just, I mean, there's a reason that they grow lots of potatoes in Idaho. It's a great climate. I don't know if you've been to Idaho, for, for potatoes, right? I don't know if you've been to Idaho and been to Texas, but the climates are decidedly different. But, you know, I grow sweet potatoes down here, like, 
unbelievable amounts of sweet potatoes. In fact, they grow so beautifully down here that people use them for landscaping because they're a relatively attractive vine. So things got easier because a lot of this other stuff I, I wasn't worried about. And we'll even talk about some grain stuff today. And if I'm growing the grain mostly as supplemental feed to livestock, well, the grains that I can grow for them are a hell of a lot easier and require less processing because they'll do all the processing for me. And then I am more interested if I grow something like millet, for instance, with the straw that I can use for mulch, than I am with the millet itself that the chickens can have or, or some other things. All right, so to me, the most moving on to the kind of like, let's produce some protein. The most efficient protein production that you can possibly get as a homesteader that you can do just about anywhere except in some suburban areas where they've outlawed them are chicken and ducks. And I, I don't think anybody here that's listened before is going to be surprised by that, that conclusion. But when we look at good... Uh, Dual-purpose birds on both sides, uh, like uh, Buff Orpington is a great chicken. Uh, if you want to occasionally say, let's see if we can get a hen to be broody and bring up one one little uh, flock of, of, of chickens, and you know it takes 90 days to get them up to broiler size versus 35 days for a hybrid, but they're going to be happy chickens for 90 to 120 days even, and and then we'll start maybe taking them out a few at a time. Um, they're a great bird for that. The Khaki Campbell uh, is, is a great duck to do the same thing with, and they both are very good egg layers. They're very docile, uh, both of those breeds, and there's a lot of other great ones as well. So someone says, well, I like this. Or, That's you know, fine. It's, it's, it's all cool. Uh, I mean, I, I look at when we, when we get a bigger piece of property, uh, I, I think one of the birds I'll probably bring in are the Silkies, the black-skinned chicken. Um, there's a show I've, I watch a lot. And fortunately, I, unfortunately, I think it only had one season of like eight episodes, and they keep rerunning them. And I even find myself watching the reruns. I think it's on Cooking Channel, uh, and it's called Luke's Vietnam. And when I saw that guy cook black skin chicken, I'm like, I want to eat that so bad. Uh, so I think there's maybe some other birds that we could be brought in as meat. But for the backyard, just daily production, you know, a half a dozen hens or you know, four hens and two or three uh, egg-laying ducks are going to produce more eggs than you can probably use. You'll be giving them away, or you can. There's different ways you can you can preserve eggs. I mean, basically, you can. Scr I don't know if you know this. You can scramble eggs, right? So you scramble your eggs, and then you can dehydrate them, and you have basically dehydrated eggs. And and you know, they're pretty daggone good. You can look at uh, Tammy's uh, channel, Dehydrate the Store, to learn more about that. So uh, there are ways to preserve eggs other than you know just just eating them straight up. Uh, pickled eggs are pretty good. If you pickle beets and you boil up a bunch of eggs, and all you got to do is you take your pickled beet juice in a big jar. I, I think some of you like, like think a pickled egg requires all kinds of effort. You boil the egg, you put it in the pickled beet juice, you put the lid on it, and you set it aside for you know uh, a couple days, and, and that's it. And, and they're awesome, but you know they're kind of like hand grenades if you know what I mean. Especially if you're enjoying enjoying a, a grain based adult beverage with them. But there's there's other things you can do with them. But they're that daily production. And I think that hens and ducks in small scale for meat production are not highly efficient. But if you just let it happen, if there's just that occasional broody hen, uh, if you if you have a rooster with your flock, which is a lot harder to do in suburbia, um, and you and you let them kind of just happen, and you can raise a dozen, two dozen a year. Well, folks, that's one or two meals a month, and that's supplemental without a lot of extra effort because you don't need a whole lot of extra housing and care because you're only growing them for maybe, you know, again, three to six months before you're starting to take them out. Um, 
if you want meat production, to me, nothing beats rabbits. Absolutely nothing beats rabbits for effort, for, you know, effort in versus meat out, for ease of breeding, for ease of care, for ease of feed, for the ability to grow a lot of your own feed for them, to acquire a lot of the feed for them for free. Um, it's hard to beat rabbit. It really is. And uh, you can pretty much have them anywhere. Even a lot of people that would have problems with chickens and ducks, you know, what's up with the rabbits? They're my pets. And you're kind of around that. They're not, they're not generally seen as livestock the way that, let's say, pigs and things and, 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 and you know, ducks and, and chickens are. Some places, I'm sure, homeowners associations, if you're dealing with one of those, the only thing I could advise you to do is try to get the hell out. I, I really, I find the homeowners association to be the most destructive piece of crap ever created by mankind. I, I don't think there's anything that's caused more misery to individuals, let me clarify that, whose lives are otherwise fine than the Homeowners Association. I, I really don't. And this, well, if we don't have one, then people will leave. Their, you know, come on. There's plenty of houses out there that are in areas without Homeowners Associations where the neighborhoods are just fine. I've lived in several. And I've, I've never lived under a Homeowners Association, and I never will. Um, so th there is that exception. But rabbits are just awesome. And when we get into stuff you can grow, I'm going to refer back a lot of things that are being grown that can be grown for the rabbits and grown in very large quantities without a lot of effort and very, very pest-free, ease-of-growth stuff uh, that the rabbits will really enjoy. I think that when you look at the small scale, one of the natural inclinations is to gravitate toward uh, aquaponics. And to look at, you know, growing something like tilapia and, and then a vegetable-based thing in either a greenhouse or a greenhouse or a greenhouse that can become a greenhouse or even open air. And I think it has a lot going for it, but I think it's a lot more work than a lot of people realize. I think that I've heard from plenty of people who've set them up and said that they never worked as hard as they ever worked until they set up an aquaponic system trying to keep those fish alive. Now, I've talked to other people that say it can be that way, but when you get a system stabilized and you've got it running long-term, and it's well-stabilized at that point, that um, it gets very, very easy. And that makes me, I've kept a lot of aquariums in my life, and I, I feel like that's exactly the same scenario. The, the problem is, and most people that have kept aquariums know this as well, that one day you can just have a system kind of like that's seen very stable for a very long time crash, and I've heard that from aquaponics people before. I would also say that from an aquaponics system, you're going to do more production of vegetable than meat. I, I, I don't think that people, you know, think about, okay, I'm going to raise 50 fish in, in one wave of tilapia, but 50 tilapia isn't that much meat. Uh, it, it really isn't for, for the time and the effort put in. What makes it productive is it's a byproduct of the veg, vegetative growth. And one of the things that has me thinking, okay, I was going to do aquaponics here, I know I'm going to, I know I'm going to sell this place, or you just, we probably won't sell, we'll probably kind of just keep it as a, as a bug out location like it was before, and I know I'm going to get a bigger place in Texas, and do I really need to jack with aquaponics? And part of what makes me want to is that put in the right area where all the resources are available, keep the care easy, I believe there's a lot of things that are hard to grow in the South that you could grow in an aquaponics system well. For instance, I can grow cilantro like crazy in the fall and the spring. I can grow it like mad, like giant weeds. And so, I mean, just throw the seeds on the ground, it just grows. 
In the summers down here, I have, I don't care if they say it's slow bolt in the name or not, I have a tremendous problem with cilantro quickly bolting. It's supposed to be a long-term herb that slowly goes into its second uh, second thing where it goes into coriander, right? And it grows up tall. And once it does, it starts setting up those seed stalks. And all, it, the, the leaves are just crap. They're not usable anymore. They, they don't taste like cilantro anymore. They taste like feet. Um, so... Um, My theory is that using an aquaponic system, keeping those roots cool, that would be one example. And a lot of different lettuces and stuff that we just let go by the wayside in the summer down here because they just can't handle the heat would do very well in an aquaponic system. And I also think we could grow a lot of the feed for the fish, like in a kiddie pool growing duckweed or a small garden pond growing duckweed. So it seems to have too many advantages not to eventually do. But my, my thought is with it, is to do it in a very efficient kind of snap-together system. I think it's going to be worth the investment to do it in a completely proven-out system. And uh, I know that there's people like the urban farming guys up in Missouri. Uh, they're, they're doing you know just huge amounts of tilapia production, but they're dedicated 100% toward what they do. Right, I mean, they, they've got a lot of people working on this, and there's a tremendous amount of waste that they're taking out every day because there's no way the plants are dealing with that amount of waste. Uh, so they're using a system to get the waste out. And by the way, uh, I've got a consulting uh, thing I'm going to be doing with a gentleman up in Missouri on his property, putting in some hugel beds. And when I go up there, we're also going to go see Jason and the urban farming guys. So I'll get some video and some interview and some stuff like that when we go out and see their operation uh, in, in, in Missouri. So just know that that's coming up. But aquaponics, I think there's a lot there, but I think that it's something people really need to evaluate before they get into because I do think it's more work, especially during the establishment phase, than all the people that talk about how wonderful it is say that it is. I think the most efficient, and unfortunately this is where you need some land, you know, let's say an acre at least and probably more, is, is true aquaculture. And if we get into where we're putting ponds in and interconnecting uh, uh, drain systems from one pond to the other, putting in basically rice paddies and growing rice, and you can do that, I mean, anywhere. And they do it like crazy in Louisiana, and Ben Falk's doing it up in Vermont. So how much climate variation do you want? Then we can grow things like crayfish in the, the paddy area, and when we drain the paddy to harvest the rice, we can harvest the crayfish. We can grow fish in the pond. I don't think there's a more efficient system than stocking a pond with channel catfish and, and suspending a deer feeder over top of it with a solar panel and a, and, a, and a battery plugged into it, setting the timer a few times a day and filling it up with fish food. Um, I, I'm telling you, there, if you want carefree and you want something that when you want the fish, you can just come out and catch some fish and eat them. Uh, that's, that's more permaculturist to me than, than aquaponics. I'm not saying there's anything wrong ethics-wise, care of earth, care of people, you know, return of surplus with aquaponics, but it requires a lot more hands-on maintenance. And what I want out of efficiency is as little hands-on maintenance as possible. So the chickens, you know, we can set that up where they kind of look after themselves most of the time. We can even set them up on a paddock shift system, and we can automate that. I mean, think about this. If, if you wanted to, how hard would it be to set up about four areas for chickens, even in a suburban yard, where each day they were on a different one? And their impact is maybe five. Ideally, you would want to do seven. And you have the Sunday and just have basically a gate that just changes to where they have access to. 
and, and, and you know, you could move them with tractors and all, but you could make it that simplistic if you wanted to. With rabbits, somebody has to feed them, uh, and you have to butcher them and all, but it's not intensive. They're not going to crash over the night the way that an aquaponic system can. Not will, but can. Uh, so to me, they're more efficient. I'm also going to get a tremendous meat yield versus input out of rabbit. I, I mean, really, when you think about how much land it takes to grow even a couple goats to slaughter the meat and how much meat, you don't get a ton of meat out of a goat. And the fact that you can have, you know, let's say two does and a buck rabbit and you can produce, you know, hundreds of rabbits a year that way. You can easily produce a hundred rabbits a year. So that's that's two rabbits a week. I mean, that's not even really pushing the capability of your, of your, of your, you know, your breed stock. If you want to do that a little bit gentler, uh, you can bring it up to three does and a buck. And you, I mean, that'll, that'll produce you, you know, one to two rabbits a week with no real effort. Uh, where even if you raise a goat, a year, let's say you have or two or three goats a year, you're not going to eat a meal a week off of a goat. It just doesn't work out that way. Uh, anybody that's butchered a deer, uh, which are quite a bit larger than goats, knows that you, you look at this deer and you think that's a pretty sizable animal. And when you get done and then you have this pile of bones and tallow laying over there, it has their own resources you can use them for. But when you look at the meat, it doesn't seem like the yield you've expected, especially the first time you ever do it. Uh, there's been plenty of people, I think, that have taken their deer to a butcher, <laughs> and they've never actually shot a deer before. They, you know, they go with some buddies or something, and they take the deer to the butcher, and they feel like the butcher took meat from them. And usually, it's not the case, right? Because a butcher can't get away with that because it's if you know what to look for, the cuts are pretty obvious of everything that should be there. They just don't feel like there's enough of a yield. But that's because animals, the bigger the animal is, the lower the meat yield to the body mass, to the live weight you're going to have. Small animals have a high efficiency of body weight to meat yield, and large animals have a low efficiency. You know, pick up a, a full rack of a, a beef rib stripped of the, of the meat. Just the rib cage of a cow is a lot of weight. Uh, the rib cage of a rabbit is, is almost nothing. So that's why I think there's more efficiency there. And aquaculture, to me, for, for growing not just the meat, but all of the things that we can grow in water, like Chinese water chestnut and things like that, high, high yielding. Chinese water chestnut is the highest yielding crop in the world, uh, you know, on a, like a per acre or per, per, per square foot basis. And they're pretty dadgone tasty things. They also, that aquaculture also opens the potential for more ducks and bringing ducks in, allowing ducks to breed up, uh, harvesting ducks for meat. So I think if you have some land that the, the holy grail of productivity is getting out of the mindset of a contained system like aquaponics and going to aquaculture. And if you go into the east, uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, China, Japan. It's a huge thing because it's how they produce meat because they don't have a lot of land for grazing cattle on. So it's, it's a huge way that they produce meat. I don't have it on my list, but I would also say that, that probably the most productive livestock for meat production you can do is pigs. Uh, especially if you don't try to make a big operation out of it, you go buy a couple piglets once a year, you raise them up as a pair, you know, you're, you're not looking at that long, uh, before you go to harvest. I mean, with some breeds you're looking at, especially boars, you're looking at six months of age, right? So if you buy them at a month, you know, of age or a little older, I mean, you're not talking that long at all. Eight to ten on, on most sows. 
So to me, that's, that's a very quick turnaround. And there's a lot of things, if you have enough land for a couple pigs, that you can feed them off your land. And you do have to bring some feed in, uh, but it's a very efficient way to get, well, pork that tastes like pork. Um, there's a lot of people out there that are really keen on raising potbelly pigs uh, for meat. And there's a, a, a big reason for that. Some people get real upset. They're supposed to be pets. They're not livestock. They're pets. How could you kill them? The potbelly, the potbelly pig is a meat pig. Uh, it, it's native to the regions around Vietnam, and they are allowed basically free range on, on a lot of lands there. The people feed them, and just they breed, and they, they, they're basically a domesticated wild swine that doesn't get that big. And when they're ready to eat one, they just pick one and go out, and, and he's done, right? And it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it, he, he graduates uh, to bacon, so to speak, even though they usually don't make bacon. They do things like belly pork, which is just unbelievable. Uh, but my point with the hogs is when you raise your own hogs, or if you find somebody that's pasturing them and letting them forage and feeding them a varied diet instead of, you know, just basically corn, you get pork that tastes like pork. And, and, and it, I have gotten to the point where I don't even want to eat pork from the supermarket. Not just because it's hard to find organic, but because it doesn't taste like pork. It almost tastes like, it's like to make a pork chop from, from Kroger tastes good. I've got to put a lot of effort into seasoning it, and whenever I season it is what it's going to taste like. It's tender meat. It's, it's not bad. It's just tasteless. And uh, I find that more and more with chicken as well as I eat more and more pastured poultry. All right, let's move on to some stuff that we can, we can grow that's relatively trouble-free. My first one I have on the list is cucumbers. And the one problem you'll get with cucumbers are the freaking cucumber beetles, which are pretty easy to control. An organic pesticide that works very well on them is something called spinosad. And uh, if you do that at the right times of day so you're not hitting your bees with it when they come through, it very quickly goes into the plant. Then it doesn't harm the bees at all. And there's plenty of studies that show that it's not harmful to bees. It's basically a bacterium. And, and it's harmful to bees when it gets on them wet. So that's, that's the one place you got to be careful with it. And I haven't really used it, but it's something that I wouldn't hesitate to use if I felt I needed to. The problem with the cucumber beetle isn't what it does to the plant directly. They actually are not that damaging as far as how they feed on the plant. They, it would take a huge amount of cucumber beetle to, to destroy even one well-developed cucumber plant from their activity alone. The problem is they transmit a disease that diseases the cucumber, and then the cucumber plant begins to, to wilt, it begins to brown, and eventually it succumbs to the disease. It'll hang on for a long time, and its production goes way down, and then you'll lose it. And cucumbers grow so fast, the, the way to combat this best is as your cucumbers are coming into maturity, if, you, if you've had any problems in the past, be starting new ones. And, 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 you know, in, in, in starter pots. And as soon as the old one looks like it's really beginning to wane, put the new ones in the ground and start trimming back the old ones. And that's, that's a good way because they get into production very quick in the summer and you usually end up with more than you can use. I want to talk to you about something I did this week with, because we're getting cucumbers like mad out of one bed and we have them planted all over the place, uh, in different spaces and in different times to combat cucumber beetle, which usually end up do being a problem. And I don't want to have to use pesticide unless I have to, even organic control. So we have all these cucumbers and I'm thinking, you know, my wife likes them, but a few of them, you know, with the heat and we've been doing them with hugo culture, so I haven't been watering them very much at all. So some of them get that bitterness to them, and if you pickle a cucumber, it, it, a lot of times, unless it's super bitter, the bitterness kind of goes away. 
But my wife doesn't like pickles, like typical sour vinegar-based pickling. So I took a big pile of pickles or cucumbers and, and cut them into you know good-sized wedges, and I put them into my fermenting crock. And to that I added a brine that was made up with uh, six tablespoons. Here you go, six tablespoons of sea salt to a gallon of water, and that was enough to cover them all. Uh, a big old handful of dill, fresh dill out of the garden, uh, a, a few ounces of dill seed, about ten cloves of garlic chopped in half, and a handful of black peppercorns. I threw all that in there, and then I poured the salt brine over top of it, and it was really easy to do. I put six tablespoons into one of our one-gallon milk jug water jugs, not really milk jugs, but water jugs that look like a milk jug, shook it up, dumped it in there, rinsed it out. It was a good excuse to rotate the water out of that jug, put it back into its little storage facility. So that was the easy way to measure it out. Uh, they're phenomenal. And even my wife, who's always said, I don't like dill. I don't like, the, I'm like, you don't, you don't know what dill tastes like. She said, yeah, it's all sour. And I'm like, not the way you think it is. So I'd say they're about 40 to 50% done with their fermentation cycle. And I've been stealing some of them out of there. And they're very, very mild compared to something that's vinegary. She's like, oh, I could eat that. That's pretty good. So, uh, making pickles with, you know, fermented, uh, pickles is, is a good idea. Now, what do you do with them when they're done? Well, you could can them, but then you're going to cook them, and they're not going to be as good. The easy thing to do is understand that while we prepare for losing our systems, while the systems are here, we're using them. So, yes, we may have to realize that one day it may not be possible to drive your car. But while you have your car, you drive your car, I'm sure. Very few of you listen to the show and go, I'm not going to drive my car because someday I may not have it. So we use a refrigerator. So get your big uh, quart jars like you use for canning. And take your pickles. Make sure you wash your hands really good whenever you're dealing with something like this. You're not transmitting any bacteria or whatever in there. It's still safe because the salt is going to keep any of the dangerous bacteria down anyway. But it just helps to keep everything really clean. Take all your pickle spears and put them into you know a few big jars. And then ladle your brine from your fermenter over top of your pickles until they're covered. And put the caps on them and stick them in the refrigerator. And then start eating them. Eat a couple a day. And if you're eating a fermented food into your gut, which is a big part of paleo as well, and improving your nutrition, you'll find yourself eating a lot more cucumbers than you normally would. They're very, very low calorie, but they're a good nutrient source. And they're a good bacterial source. And they give you something to eat during the day when you go, Jack, well, I'm paleo and I need a snack. What do I eat? You freaking pickle. Right? So they, they, they fill all of those roles And when you get down to where you only have about half of what you started with, go out, pick another bunch of them, wash them up, wash your fermenter up, and make another batch. Honest to God, to make that crock full of these things took me a whopping 10 minutes. Like I just decided, I got to do something with these things. I rinsed them off, I soaked them for a little bit, I came back in and I went, okay, pickles, and just... Pulled up, you know, I wasn't sure how much salt to use. was the only thing I wasn't sure about. Pulled up a recipe, made them. It's that's, if you can dump water, I mean, you don't cook. There's no heat. There's no, there's, and that's a beautiful thing. There's no inputs to this that you can't get out of your own backyard. If you can grow garlic and dill, right, and cucumbers, the only thing you need to purchase is salt and black pepper. And you don't need the black pepper, but it's, it's nice to have. Um, the other thing I'll tell you about that is when you're done with it, put a couple pieces of garlic in each jar, and then take all the extra garlic and put it in its own jar and use it for cooking. It's freaking awesome that way. It's also good chopped up and put into salad dressings and things. Okay, next one, sweet potato. Like I mentioned this already, but you know, down here in the south, and you can grow sweet potato well into the north as well, but down here in the south, it is tough to grow potatoes. We can do it, but it's got a lot of issues. There's potato beetles go nuts. 
Um, the the freaking box stores have infected like half of the damn south soil with with heavy amounts of blight from the tomatoes, which will also come over and affect the potatoes. It's too hot a lot of the times. Potatoes are a not a cold weather crop, but they're a cool weather crop. We don't get a lot of cool weather here. Sweet potatoes. I mean, come on. You can take a, one sweet potato and make you know a, a half a dozen slips out of it. Plant a half a dozen slips out. And uh, then, you know, you'll get these vines everywhere, and you'll end up with a huge yield just from one initial tuber that you started with. And uh, you can plant the crap out of them. And it's actually good that they get stressed. Like, when they're when you're getting toward harvest time with sweet potatoes, you actually want to water them less, allow them to stress a little bit more. That helps them set their tubers. They store just as good as regular potatoes. Actually, I find they store better. To me, they taste better. They're on the moderate-use list for paleo, so I can eat them. Uh, they're just a phenomenal thing to grow and what I haven't grown yet and I need to get some some slips to grow uh, them with is the Japanese sweet potato apparently they have a purple skin and people told me when you bake these things and you eat it you'll think you're eating a buttered white potato but it has the same profile as sweet potato so I'm going to have to look into that and try those but I think sweet potato is a huge efficient relatively trouble free easy to grow low irrigation will grow in the south will grow in the north crop and it's a great if you want to have a carbohydrate crop because you're not sold 100% on paleo it's a great product for that as well it's so much more trouble free than a lot of other things and there's different yams and if you move into the subtropical zones that you can grow as well to fill the same role so you know experiment there but to me that's a huge huge um, efficient crop The next one I'm going to say is Jerusalem artichoke. Um, I think that that is so underutilized, and it'll grow in the south. It'll grow in the north. It'll grow everywhere. And it produces a tremendous number of tubers. You might get uh, 10 kilos of tubers off of one plant. And they're kind of uh, nutty, somewhere between a potato and a water chestnut world. Um, some people like them a lot. Some people don't. Even if you don't like them a lot, if you grow pigs, pigs love them. They'll eat the, the tubers, they'll eat the stalks, they'll eat the leaves, they'll eat everything. So they're a huge, uh, hugely advantageous crop to grow for both human consumption and uh, livestock fodder. Now some people see a problem with Jerusalem artichoke because when you dig them up out of a bed, it is almost impossible to get every little piece of tuber out of there. And if you leave it in there, the next year it'll come back and it'll grow again. My response to that What's your problem? What problem do you have? It, it might make sense. In fact, it probably does to come up with an area for your Jerusalem artichoke where you let them grow and, and regrow every year. And there are some things that you can polyculture with them, like uh, there's a Chinese artichoke that's a different type of tuber, a smaller tuber, Aka, um, groundnut, which I'm going to get to in just a second. A lot of those things can be polycultured in with Jerusalem artichoke. When I say polyculture, I mean they're grown together. But it wouldn't be hard to go out and dig yourself a, a trench uh, about two feet deep. It's, you know, let's say five feet by ten feet and fill that with some type of a rubber barrier and then build your Jerusalem artichoke bed inside there, sort of like they do with bamboo. And if you do that, you're not going to have a lot of spreading problems. And if you... Uh, you're not going to have a lot of seed-based spreading problems with Jerusalem artichoke either. Uh, now the flower heads can be cut off uh, when they're nearing, you know, full when they're about to die and dry out, and they can be fed to your chickens because they'll they'll peck the seeds out. They're basically very similar to a small sunflower, 
So you don't have to you don't have to get the seeds out. Chicken. I mean, some people are like I need to thresh my seed for my chickens. No, just we'll just throw it on the ground and they'll eat it, right? Uh, so I think that that's that's a huge one is Jerusalem artichoke, and uh, it has a very low glycemic index, so it's a good food for those on the paleo bandwagon, and a relatively decent amount of protein as well. The next one, which has a huge amount of protein, is groundnut. And uh, I have a few in pots and some I've put into some beds. I'm going to be moving uh, a seed crop I grew in pots into one of the beds to grow out as a seed crop through the rest of the year and into early next year, and I'll be harvesting them and taking them with me when I leave. And when I when I harvest the groundnut out of the pots and dump it out and show you how much it's produced uh, in a little bitty pot, I'll, I'll put that on video for you guys to put it on YouTube. But groundnut, basically you have to establish your area, And don't harvest it for two years. And once you've, you're two years into it, you just basically harvest it as you need it. And you can harvest it any time of year. I mean, what more? And it's huge, huge protein yield. Um, ounce for ounce as much protein, or some claim more protein than an egg. I don't know if I buy that, but uh, they taste pretty good. They're very much like a nutty potato. And they're a good substitute for potato. They're also an appetite suppressant when consumed raw. If you take a few slices of ground nut and you chew on it, it will, if you like want to make sure you don't eat until dinner, it's very, very good at suppressing appetite, uh, because of its, its chemical makeup. So that's a, that's another great one. Very few things eat or bother ground nut. I've never seen any pests bother ground nut. Uh, it needs relatively moist, loose soil so its tubers can form. If you can give it a relatively moist area, it'll handle partial shade, it'll handle pretty much all day sun, it'll handle everything but heavy, heavy shade. It's an edge plant uh, in gardens. It grows a lot along creek banks in the wild because it'll get an edge so it gets sun, it gets moisture wicked in from the stream. So if you have anything like that on property that mimics that, great place for your groundnuts to go. It's a native wild plant. It's probably the most productive native wild plant that we have that you don't have to change anything about it to use it as, as a plant that you would grow and consume. Uh, next up today, I like to grow some older grains, even if I'm not going to eat a lot of it. And I like grains like amaranth, quinoa, millet, sorghum, older corns, like older Indian corns, blues and reds and flint corns and things like that, and sunflower. Sunflower is probably, the out of all of them, the most pest-free thing. I've seen plenty of pests eat sunflower leaves. I've never seen them eat it fast enough to, to cause them harm. They, once, they, once they get established, especially you get non-hybrid large sunflower varieties. And once they're a foot tall, that plant can grow so freaking fast. There's, there's just almost nothing can eat it down as fast as it can grow. Huge yield. Great for your chickens, good high, high, uh, high source of oils. You do not want to overfeed chickens, uh, sunflowers though, folks. It will cause them to molt excessively and all, but there's no, nothing wrong with feeding them some sunflowers with mixed other feed. So a way to do that, you have a flock of six hens, you cut your heads of your sunflowers off and dry them out. And when you, you know, you go out there and you just throw a head, the head on the ground and let them work it out amongst themselves. It's kind of comical to watch them fight over them as well. You want to superpower your chickens, though. Supplement some um, amaranth and quinoa in. I mean, that's uh, so even with your if you're buying a feed for them or something like that, you know, to to two cups of chicken feed, add a half a cup of amaranth and quinoa, and get that protein and, and oil in, in there with it. Millet as well. Millet is actually an awesome grain. I mean, if you want a grain that's easy to grow, good nutritional profile. It's millet. The problem with using it for human consumption is a pain in the ass to process. You're talking about little seeds, and they have to be husked, uh, unlike quinoa and amaranth. 
Uh, but it's very, very hardy, and you get certain varieties of the white pro silk with these huge seed heads. Uh, but chickens don't care, right? So we can harvest our millet, cut our seed heads off, reserve them for our chickens. So now we go out to feed our chickens, and even if we're buying some feed, we throw some feed, they're getting wild forage, they're getting fruit drop hopefully off some of our fruit trees, and then they're getting a little bit of quinoa and, and amaranth, site-grown millet, And see, the chickens are eating and consuming things, and we're putting that manure back into the ground. We're generating not just a nutrient cycle, we're starting to create a mineral cycle. So the, the chickens are eating things, that are, and they're extracting the minerals, excreting it from their, their waste, and it's being put back into the ground, and the minerals are becoming more and more and more bioavailable over time. So the nutritional value of the food for both ourselves and for the chickens, and us of the chickens and their products like eggs, the ducks like their eggs, is becoming a higher, higher mineral content as well by feeding them what's grown on site. It's a huge advantage that nobody ever talks about. Um, sorghum, I think if you want something that you can turn into a flour and, and make things like pancakes out of and stuff like that, sorghum is so forgotten, so underutilized. Most people think of sorghum as a source of syrup, and there are syrup sorghums, And there are grain sorghums. There's a, a dual-purpose sorghum called Mennonite sorghum. Mennonite, like the Mennonites, uh, it, was, it was originally I think, cultivated in Missouri. And it is awesome. You get pretty good grain yields out of it. And the cane, you can be squeezed for sorghum syrup. Now, before you think, I'll just go buy this and I'll squeeze my canes, it's a pretty involved process to make sorghum syrup. The, the machines that... that Squeeze the cane are pretty specialized, and the cooking process to end up with sorghum syrup is pretty involved. And you need quite a bit of it for you know to, to, to get somewhere. But if you have cattle or goats, they'll eat it. They'll just eat it, right? So I mean that's that's one thing that can be done with it. Or if you live in kind of a country area, check around. There might be somebody that processes sorghum near you, and you might be able to just do it this way. Look, I'm going to grow, you know. A, I don't know, one twentieth of an acre of this stuff, and I want the grain for seed crop and for, for, for flour and for, for feed, and I'm going to have all the canes, and I'll bring you the canes, and maybe you give me a few quarts of sorghum syrup back. So that might be another option as well. It's, uh, it's not as easy as I think some people believe it to be, but everybody used to do it literally in the farming community. If you go back a 100 years and you went out to a farm, Uh, the number one sweetener that people used was, was sorghum, and they either produced it on their own farm, they grew a small crop of it, and they had the equipment to do it with, or, you know, one, one of the farms out of, you know, a couple dozen of them would, would specialize in it and barter and sell it to the surrounding farms. It was before the heyday of, of white sugar. It was the primary sweetener, more so than honey. And I left bees out, but bees are very, very productive as well. I'll just throw that in there for you beekeepers. Um, the next thing I think that people really overlook is weeds. Uh, why not cultivate weeds? I mean, weeds show up all by themselves. They grow like crazy, and we complain about them when we could be eating them or using them for feed. Plantain, lamb's quarters, dandelion, chickweed. Those four you should be growing. You should have them. If you have those four things growing on your property, your biodiversity increases. Plantain and lamb's quarters produce seed that can basically be a grain. If you grow a lamb's quarter plant to its full size, and then you take it when it's just about this, like the seeds are just starting to drop on their own, and cut off all the seed heads and bang them inside a five-gallon bucket and dump that into a one-gallon Ziploc freezer bag, you will fill it about halfway from one plant. Chickens will eat that stuff, man. And it's very, very high protein. If you occasionally eat breads and things like that, and you want to boost the protein and, and, and fiber count in them, just 
you know, put a scoop of lamb's quarter into a whole grain bread. Uh, or, you know, a couple spoonfuls into, I don't know, sorghum flour when you make pancakes. It'll boost the protein. It has a, it's, it's tremendous nutrient extraction. And then we've got all this lamb's, and lamb's quarter is awesome. I think a lot of people have tried it, and if you just pluck it off and eat it, it's okay, but it's a little uh, fibrous, and it'll kind of get caught in your throat. If it's chopped up in, in small, you know, just basically take all the leaves and add it into a salad where it's mixed in with other things, it's much more palatable raw. But the way that lamb's quarters is awesome is sautéed. You take a whole mess of lamb's quarters, you, you do it just like you will spinach, right? So you take your lamb's quarters, chop up some garlic, Uh, get your butter, you know, good quality butter, uh, hot in your, in your pan. Saute your garlic a little bit and, and get that pan good and hot. And then throw your lamb's quarters in there. And you can throw other greens along with it. Uh, some dandelion greens. If you get young greens, it'll help counter the bitter issue and get shade thrown dandelion. It'll help counter the bitter issue and, and mix that together. And maybe even a little bit of something like spinach or something like that. Some other greens. And you, you, as soon as you throw it in there, take it off the heat. And just wilt it with the residual heat in the pan. Good cast iron skill. It's the best way to do this. It's phenomenal. It's good. It's good like that. It's good cooked into eggs. Saute it a little bit first and then drop scrambled, you know, eggs on it, scramble that up. It's a phenomenally good plant, but it's also a great forage plant. I mean, it grows like crazy. I mean, you pull pieces off and throw it to your rabbits. Amaranth, the same thing. Uh, great forage plant for rabbits. Uh, and then there's vegetable varieties of amaranth. So that's why I'm kind of throwing it in here. So instead of just growing your amaranth for grain, grow some vegetable-style amaranth. There's amaranths that are more suited to that, that stay tender longer. You can get them, let it get a little bit bigger. Just about any amaranth. If, if you cut it before when it's about six inches tall or smaller and just take the plant, it's it's pretty dead gone good. Um, the leaves will be pretty good in a salad. The whole thing chopped up, even some of the stems and all will be good stir-fried. But there's varieties of amaranth that you know only grow about one to two feet that are more specifically grown for vegetable use. And those are great too uh, and can be added in. And seen as growing weed. And wild amaranths can be grown that way as well. There's hundreds of varieties of amaranth out there. And a lot of it's just growing wild. So don't overlook the weeds. And there's you know probably a lot more that I could add to this. Uh, next up, cow pea, black-eyed pea, etc., all that stuff, the southern peas, right, that are actually a type more like a bean than a pea. Um, they are so trouble-free. I mean, I grew red cow pea last year. I just threw it out on the damaged land more as a reparative cover crop, and I had cow peas everywhere. I didn't do anything, and I threw them out in, like, August and September, and they grew all over the place. Uh, one of the few food crops that were not destroyed in the South during the war between the states were a lot of the crops of, of, of cowpea because the northern soldiers didn't know what the hell they were. They didn't think it was food. They saw some bushes and crap growing there. It looked like something, you know, it didn't look, so they didn't, they didn't, they didn't burn it and they didn't steal it for their own use. So it was one of the things that really helped the South get through the, uh, the Civil War. I learned that in a book called Ersatz, uh, during the Civil War, which is a, Pretty interesting book recommended to me by a reader. But the cow peas, the black eyed peas, huge protein source. Uh, not exactly paleo, but I'm not real anti, uh, anti legume the way Rob Wolf is, especially when it's a, it's a piece of the diet rather than the diet. So a, a small serving of, of, of black eyed peas with your steak is totally acceptable to me. And they're also a great forage crop. Uh, chickens, I mean, again, You can take the whole plants and just when, when the pods are mature and just cut them. And you just throw them in with your chickens. The chickens will pick the peas out. 
And then they'll scratch the hell out of it, and then you can compost that. And there's a lot of nitrogen in the pods and the leaves of the peas. And when you've cut it, instead of pulling it up out of the ground, you've left the roots that have the nitrogen nozzles in the ground, and they've improved the soil for the next crop. So it's it's almost to me like it doesn't make sense, especially if you live in the South, you're not growing them uh, unless you... I, if you don't, if you don't have any livestock and you don't like them, I'll, I can I can give you a pass on it. But if you don't like them but you have livestock, I mean, it, it's a great thing to throw to your livestock as well. Uh, another one is okra. Um, I've seen okra plants start to grow, and I've seen you know they start to get chewed on by an insect, and occasionally one will get taken out before it establishes. Once it's about two inches tall, that's it, man. They start to chew on that, and that mucilage, you know, comes out, and they're just they don't like it, and they let it go, and, and it's just so trouble free. It's a great crop, and I've been thinking I haven't tried it, but I I like pickled okra, and I don't know if it's really suitable for it, but I'm thinking about trying to do some okra when my okra starts to produce the way that I told you about doing the pickles with a natural fermentation. And one thing I think I could do to kind of help it along is do it with cucumbers. So maybe throw a couple, a handful of okra in there with it, see how it comes out. That way I still have my pickles to salvage it if I don't like the results. But uh, I really like okra. Um, it, it's one of those things that if you if you want to preserve it, the best way is probably canning if you want to do something that's you know sh- shelf-stable. It's really easy to freeze, though. Chop it up in si- the size you want it. Um, get boiling, get water boiling, put it in a, um, like a colander, like a strainer, and dump it into your hot water for about two to three minutes. Take it out to blanch it. Uh, spread it out on a cookie sheet on, on wax paper. Stick it in your freezer like that, and then put it into your Ziploc bags. If you have a chest freezer, it's, and we do, it's one of the best applications of a chest freezer, is to be able to take blanched vegetables and spread them out on a cookie sheet and just get them to where they're frozen before you put them in there. Why? Because when you take it out, it's not a big block of okra. It's You can take out a handful at a time. So your gumbos and things like that you use okra in is great. A way that I really like to eat okra, and, and some people can't get past the, the mucilage thing. The, 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 it's, it is kind of slimy, but you know, in, in, in gumbos and all, that actually thickens the stock, and it doesn't taste slimy when you eat it. But if you pick it really young, I'm talking really young. I'm talking an inch and a half, two inches, right? When it's real, real young, and you, you pick four or five of those, and you throw it straight on a grill, brush it with olive oil, salt, and pepper, uh, maybe a little garlic, salt, and pepper. And uh, it's I like it that way. But, again, it's a personal choice thing. Uh, but if you like okra and you're not growing okra, I don't even understand. It is so hardy, so unbelievably tough, and it produces a ton of organic matter for mulch and, and compost uh, when the season's done. Uh, the next one I see that, that is really underutilized are what I call underutilized greens. Wolzante, New Zealand spinach, Malabar spinach, Orach, as I said before, vegetable amaranth. Uh, these things are very easy to grow, very, very hardy, and I think a reason a lot of them are not grown very much, is somebody will try it. They'll say, okay, I'm going to give this New Zealand spinach a shot. So they go out and buy some of these weird-looking seeds, and they stick them in the ground, and the this, this, this spinach crop comes up. And they cut it, and they eat it, and they go, that doesn't taste like spinach. And they think, that's not even really that good. And I think what a lot of people would determine if they would try it is a lot of times if you go out and pluck a leaf off a romaine lettuce plant growing in the ground and just eat it straight, it's not that great. It's got a bitterness to it. It's got a little... And something happens with greens and salads. And I think it's why salad exists. 
When I take four or five different greens and I put them into a salad, I dress them with a little oil or something like that or another salad dressing, and, and I do that with it, all of a sudden the, the, the tastes offset each other. So I can go out there now, and I, because I'm growing my weeds, I could make a salad with some plantain, some lamb's quarter, a little bit of dandelion. Uh, the chick, the chickweed's an early spring thing, so we're going to say that's out for the summer. But some Malabar spinach, which has a little bit of that okra kind of thing going on, but not anywhere near as much. But just a little bit of it mixed in with there. And see, we build the bulk out of a little bit of everything. Some orach, uh, some vegetable amaranth, and some wolzante, which is also called uh, red Aztec spinach. Might be easier. Wolzante, if you want to look it up that way, is how you spell it. H-U-A-U-Z-O-N-T-L-E. Wolzante. And that actually gets these little heads at the end that are kind of like a cross between like a broccoli and asparagus. You can eat those at the end of the season when it produces those seed heads for you. Um, but you can eat greens off it all summer long. So to me, these and, and anything else that would fit in there that I might have overlooked today on my list are all things that we could be using to grow a lot more of our own food during the summer when we say it's too warm for a lot of our lettuces and spinaches and other greens that we grow. I think Swiss chard isn't really kind of... Thought of anymore is underutilized. A lot of people are aware of it, but I would definitely say you put that in there as well. And it's another one. The thing with these greens, folks, that, you know, you take a piece of Swiss chard, you pluck it off the plant and you eat it, and it's got this bitterness. And you're, I mean, you're like, I don't know if I really like that. But you put it into a salad or you put it into a stir fry, and everything changes. A lot of the stuff that we grow is much better with other things mixed together and then prepared a little bit than it is straight. So if you've tried some of this stuff before and said that's not really for me, then maybe give it another try by doing some of this, this combination cooking or preparation. Uh, another thing that I think believe belongs in every yard is peppers. And uh, I, I think that one of the big problems that people have is there's a myth out there. Do not fertilize your peppers. Have you ever heard that? Well, there's a truth to it. If you fertilize peppers with too much nitrogen, you'll get a great big giant plant, and it won't produce well. Especially in the short growing season climates, like in the north. But I think because of that reality, a myth has taken over, never fertilize them. Don't give them any fertility. Oh my God, no. And I see these people, and this pathetic little pepper plant, you know, it's maybe 10 inches high. It's got one big old pepper hanging off the side of it, and it's, the leaves are yellowish. If your pepper plants have yellow leaves, if they're anything but a dark green, you do not have enough nitrogen. Fertilize the damn plant and it will grow. And it will grow unbelievably. The best organic fertilizer I've found for peppers, when they're, when they're demonstrating this lack of nitrogen, they've already started to turn yellow. The leaves have turned from that. You bought the plant and it was beautiful green. You put it in your garden. For whatever reason it is, that pepper's not getting enough nitrogen out of your garden. The leaves start to turn to like a softer green. Maybe they start to yellow a little bit. Before it goes too far, miracle Grow organic um, fertilizer, the liquid form that's made from fermented beet juice, it's like 12 parts nitrogen. It doesn't do a daggone thing for the phosphorus and potassium. So you need to be using compost and other things. But what that pepper's saying to you when it has that, that, that lackluster color is, please give me nitrogen. I need it. Give it to me now. And if you take a cap full of that stuff to a two-gallon watering can, put that on your peppers, and do it like the first, when, when it's already, like when you see it looking like that, that's like therapy is necessary. Three days in a row. 
Then a week later, do it again. Then a week later, do it again. And then just watch them. And as long as they stay green, you've, you've probably got them established. The roots have extended out. If you're doing good gardening practices, by now they're getting their nitrogen, you know, domestically, so to speak. If they start to fade at all on you, if those leaves start to back off in color, give them some more of it. And if once you get peppers established, especially in these long growing seasons down here, it's like a little tree. I mean, I, I've got them this year, folks. They're already two feet tall. The jalapenos and the sweet peppers are both two feet tall. And growing like your hot peppers and all is another opportunity to do ferment, fermentation and, and pickle your peppers with fermentation versus vinegar. And uh, jalapenos done that way are fabulous. I, I'm really excited about I know the end of the year this year I'll be doing what I did uh, the last couple of years, which is I'll know when the first freeze is going to kill the pepper plants. You know, you, you get the weather forecast, you know, okay, this is the last week. And, and they're, they're loaded by that time. And I'll just go out and I cut the plants off right at the roots with a, with, a, with a pair of clippers, and I just start pulling the peppers off them, no matter what size they are. And last year when I did that, you know, the sh and I, I didn't have anywhere near as many as I had this year. The shopping bags that bring you, know, like, 99, you buy them for 99 cents at the grocery store, and you bring your own bags back like that. I had three bags just from the last harvest. Uh, it was like two days before Thanksgiving. We knew the frost was coming. And uh, I had three full bags of peppers, uh, ancho chilies, uh, jalapeno chilies, and sweet peppers. And it was uh, – so to me, they're extremely productive. Uh, I have seen the, the tomato hornworms do a little bit of damage to them. They usually eventually stop, though. And they basically prune your pepper and it grows back and it, it'll still produce for you. So I've seen some tornado, uh, tomato hornworm damage on them. Generally when you plant a lot of peppers, not all of them get attacked, only one or two, and those are your weaker plants anyway. Um, and if you, if you start seeing that kind of damage, if you look at a, a pepper plant and you see a lot of leaves missing, like stripped off, gone, odds are there's tomato horn hornworm activity. Start looking really hard, and if it's the middle of the day and you don't see them come out there in the evening, Right before dark, those guys seem to hide a lot during midday and look for them and pull those suckers off and kill them. Uh, they're a big, giant, green caterpillar. You can't miss them if you're looking for them. But if you're not looking for them, you will look past them 40 times and never see them. They tend to stick out on a pepper a little bit better than a tomato because the pepper's a darker green than they are. They're about the color green of a nice, beautiful tomato. And I try to live at peace with pests, but I hate those suckers. And they will eat a jalapeno pepper, not just the plant, the pepper. I had one last year. I had a huge jalapeno on one of my, uh, my, uh, my patio grown, uh, pots. You know, it was, it was big and beautiful. And I, I looked at it that morning and I went, that's going to be perfectly fresh when I cook with it tonight. I'm going to come home and get that pepper. And it was like seven in the morning when I left the house and I came back at like two thirty. And I went out there to get my pepper, and it was gone. And there was a big-ass hornworm sitting on the plant, and he ate the dadgone pepper. So capsaicin doesn't seem to bother those guys. So to me, they have to go. But peppers, because we can pickle them, we can freeze them, we can dehydrate them. They're highly productive. They're mostly pest-free. Uh, and if we give them a little bit of nitrogen when they need it, they're, they're a very trouble-free crop. Uh, green beans. And I, I put green in quotes on my list because I would put yellow wax beans in here. But any kind of bean that we're going to eat in the pot, so not a shell bean, right? Uh, we're moving into the legume. Uh, you know, we're moving into more of the true legumous uh, nutrient source there. I'm talking about uh, you know string beans, that type of thing. Um, it's hugely, hugely efficient, and we can be planted in so many ways. We get the pole varieties, and we're growing, let's say, some amaranth, some quinoa, some uh, some sorghum, some corn, some sunflower. Every one of those plants should have three or four bean seeds planted around it. Once it gets about, 
I'd say once they get about two to three feet tall, just get some Kentucky Wonder pole bean or purple potted pole bean or something like that. And just as your, as your, your, your upright vertical plants get up into the two foot range, even a foot and a half, you know, go out there and plant some, some bean seeds around them and let them crawl up. And it's just like, it's like free. It's just utilizing the space that normally wouldn't be utilized. And because you're filling those, those gaps in, it'll help keep your weeds down. It'll put nitrogen in the soil. It gives you an extra yield. I, again, that's one of those things like, when I see somebody with a huge, you know, bed full of sunflower, they're like, aren't they pretty? I'm like, where's the beans? They're like, what? Why don't you plant some? Oh, they won't grow. They'll grow beautifully down there. And, and they'll, they'll trellis up. And by the time you're cutting your heads off your sunflowers, you're still going to be picking beans where you probably don't have time to get another summer crop into that space. So you pick your beans until you're ready to put your fall winter crop in. So to me, that's another very, very paleo-friendly, very, very high-efficient uh, production system. The next one is winter squashes. I, I think that that's way underplanted. And the two that I have found that stop the squash vine borers dead cold are the butternut squash and the long neck uh, pumpkins. Uh, those two, like the Pennsylvania Dutch long neck pumpkins, and the good old-fashioned Waltham butternut. Everybody likes the exotic stuff, so do I. But the good old-fashioned, can get it anywhere, Waltham butternut squash is the most pest-hardy squash I've ever seen. We took one that we grew in Texas. I, I cut it in August. I set it in the windowsill. We had like a window seat around our uh, thing. And like a month later, my wife goes, are you going to do something with that? I said, I'm doing it. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm seeing how long it takes before that thing starts to get soft and, and to where it's not good anymore. So she like rolls her eyes and walks away. And, and, and then she comes back. She goes, you know what? That's fine. And yeah, I know what she was thinking. <laughs> no problem because it ain't going to last long. It'll be out of there. So like... Christmas comes, and we have, you know, like Thanksgiving, it was cool because we set it on the table with the centerpiece, <laughs> and it's still there. Now, this is not refrigerated. This is not in, in a cellar, so, so it was kind of cool then. So Christmas comes, we got all the Santa Claus crap around and, and all the Christmas lights, and there's this freaking squash sitting in the window seat. So she sets it up on top of the refrigerator. I freak out. I'm like, no, no, it's hot up there. I, that's the, you know, so we compromise and ends up on the countertop. So Christmas comes and goes. Now we're into January. The window's nice and cool. Good place for it. So I take it off the countertop and put it back in the window seat. <laughs> so like March comes and she's like, isn't that damn thing nasty yet? And I'm like, I picked it up. I'm like, no, we could eat it if you want to. She goes, I'm not eating that after that long. I'm like, well, I'm leaving it here until it gets some sign that it's, it's been too long, that it gets, it gets soft, it gets some marks on it. Those happened about June. This happened about June. So this squash lived in the house uh, from August till June with no care whatsoever. Now, can I say that in May it would have tasted as good? Probably not. But had it been stored in a root cellar or something like that, it probably would have. So they have incredible storage life, and the, the, the reason the vine borers don't get to them is they're, if you've ever seen the vine of the long neck pumpkin and the butternut squash, they don't look like a normal squash vine. They're not these big juicy vines. They're hard, rope-like. I mean, you could strip the leaves off one and beat somebody like a whip with it. I mean, they're, they're tough. And uh, they tend to stand up fairly well to squash bugs. The thing about squash bugs is the, the problem is the nymphs, not the adults, so the little babies. So if you walk out every couple of days and check your leaves, if you see little red, red, uh, red uh, eggs on your squash leaves, those are squash bug eggs. And real, real simple to get rid of. A lot of people say squish them, but you usually damage your leaves. 
So get a piece of duct tape and you know do it double-sided so it's across your four fingers like you're going to get hair off a shirt. And wherever you see them, just take the duct tape and just take them right off with it. And they come right off and it doesn't hurt your leaves. And then just wad your duct tape up and throw it away. Bye-bye. No more squash bugs. When they do get on there, adult squash bugs are hard to kill. But the nymphs, you'll find them. And they, the nice thing is they all conglomerate in one area for you. They like to be in a little tribe. Uh, and the good old-fashioned insecticidal soap. I don't like to use it a lot. But when they start showing up, go out there and just, just wherever you see them, give them a mist and problems go away. So no vine bores with the, with the vines and the tough vines and squash bugs fairly easy to control with just a little bit of hands-on activity. And you get a big yield out of a couple butternut plants. Um, I am saying that I'm really looking hard at the holist seed pumpkins I just learned about from Jeff Lawton. I ordered some. The first thing I did when I opened my packet was I ate one. You know, and this is to be planted in the ground, so it wasn't roasted or anything. Are these things, they, it tasted great. Honestly, it tasted as good as if it was roasted, other than it didn't have salt or any kind of seasoning on it. So I'm like, okay, they're going to taste good. So I planted six in a little six-pack to start the seed. Only one has germinated for me, and I have it out, and it's doing fairly well. I don't know how it's going to handle vine borers. We have a lot of vine borer activity in the South, so I don't know how it'll handle it. In a polyculture, it's probably going to do a lot better, so getting into polyculture. But I had poor germination rates, uh, from, but I only bought seeds from one source. Jeff and some guys at the Permaculture Resource Institute in Australia, Australia are supposed to be sending me some. And there's a Japanese variety that I'm going to give a try to as well and see how it tastes and see if it, uh, if it produces well. But those pumpkins are not really that great of a flesh, but I guarantee you hogs will eat them. And if you have deer that you're feeding, I guarantee you deer will eat them. But the seeds, a huge seed yield, uh, a great, let's call it a seed grain, uh, and no work. I mean, you clean them, dry them, and that's it. There's no holes. So I love pumpkin seeds, but frankly, sitting there and you know eating them like giant sunflower seeds and spitting the shells out, it's kind of disgusting and a pain in the ass. And coming up with a system to winnow them and all just doesn't seem very practical. But these holeless pumpkin seeds seem really good, and they're big. Uh, I bought like they call them pepitos, you know, you can buy them in the store and they're pretty small. They're like a big sunflower seed. These things were about the size of a, like a jack-o'-lantern pumpkin, you know, those big ones you get out before there's, before you take the hole off them. They were that big. So if I can get them to grow and if they're pest free, I think they'll be really high up. I know they grow the heck out of them down there in Australia, but I don't think they have vine borers down there. Uh, and the vine bores have been hell on my winter squash other than the long neck pumpkin and the Waltham butternut. And the Waltham butternut is the daddy, man. That's the one it can handle anything. It, it really can. It's even tough against the, the squash bugs to a large degree. Another thing, great reason to plant squ uh, uh, sunflowers. Squash bugs love to suck on sunflower uh, leaves. So if you plant a big pile of sunflower, it can act as a trap crop to pull a lot of your squash bugs away from your squash Not the vine borers, but the, the squash bugs over to the uh, the sunflowers, and they just can't really harm them. And if you get a leaf completely coated with squash bugs uh, on your sunflower, just cut it off and throw it in the garbage. Sorry, guys, you're going to the compactor in the landfill. You, you, or, you know, I guess you could compost them, but I'm a little leery of that. But if you have a burn barrel and you happen to be on burning day and you drop them in there, that'll make sure that they don't come back and cause any problems. But there you go. So I wanted to do a little bit different of a show. It's been a long time since I've gone through, like, different varieties of plants and stuff like that and giving you my reasoning behind them. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow we're going to have a really cool show. 
on uh, how to interact with emergency uh, per personnel during a disaster and how prepared to supplies there. And the guy we're going to have on was a lead physical scientist in charge of the Department of Homeland Security, ICAV uh, Geopartial System and 24-7 Geopartial Mapping Production Center. So he's going to be a really switched on guy with some real inside information on stuff like that. Uh, so that should be a great show. Again, that'll be on tomorrow. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.